taking it now. On the 21-yard line, Kilkenny landing the goal, and here it comes. It's low and hard, and Ali Walsh saves it, and it comes back in again, and it's, yes, it's a goal! It's a goal for Tipperary! The score, Ireland 6, Wales 6. And we are playing eight minutes overtime, but we had a lot of lost time. Ireland's last chance, five yards from the Welsh line on the left. Everybody pushing in the scrum, and it's Ireland's ball, and Ireland have it. They're holding it at the back of the scrum, and now it's picked up by Mick Doyle, and it's Mick over. Mick is over. It's a score for Ireland for Mick Doyle. Listen to that crowd. Half a minute left for play. Ireland leading 1-0. Hamilton coming up into the English half. Coming right up. Lickstead's outside him. It goes up. Transfer to Lickstead. Lickstead has it at the corner flag. Cuts back. Centres. Left footed. Too wide though. Too far ahead of anybody. And it's taken away by Hall of England. As he's tackled. Halter Finney. Halter Finney. They're playing lost time. Time is up. As Finney comes back for England. Finney and Sayward. Finney centering now for England. Back to centre, he's going in, he's going in, he's beaten Sayward, he's beaten Sayward, he crosses, and it's a goal! The agony and the ecstasy, the essence of sport. Sport, an activity of man as complex as life itself. Man is aware of time, his main occupation is the sustenance of life, but man also needs variety. One of his greatest interests and diversions is sport. And, as the problem of sustenance becomes easier, so his interest in sport becomes greater. In it is vested his dreams of perfection. It becomes his holy grail, and in its fabric is woven drama, ritual and fantasy. It has its own well-defined laws and codes of behaviour. It gives a sense of identification and well-being. But how does modern sport fit into this concept? Cyril White, Department of Social Science, University College, Dublin. I feel myself, and uh, I'm supported by um, the literature in this regard, that modern industrial work is somewhat dehumanising. It is a situation that man has little pride in. However, he has considerable uh, affluence from this, and he will now use his leisure time, and sport being one of the things one does in leisure time, a part of recreation, um, to look for meaning to his life. And he will identify... uh, with certain sports activities uh, as an an aid to achieving meaning and uh, understanding and, to a degree, satisfaction to his existence. And another definition from Michael O'Hare. Sport is the safety valve. I think a lot of people get the opportunity of letting off steam either by playing sport or participating in sport or as spectators. Sometimes they let it off in a way that isn't all that happy, but uh, I think that the letting off of steam uh, and the built-up emotions that a person can have within himself or within herself, I think that uh, this is one of the important aspects of sport. And from Malcolm Brody, sports editor of the Belfast Telegraph. I think uh, sport is the Uh, great uh, leveller. I think it brings people together. Uh, It gives them uh, an opportunity to express themselves away from the uh, conflict of uh, the uh, more difficult uh, things in life. And uh, generally, uh, it leads to a a much better understanding amongst people. Mm -hmm. And on a more personal note, Dr Bob O'Driscoll, chairman of Waterford Soccer Club. 
Well, of course, every person that has um, a life where, where, where major decisions and tension uh, is involved needs something to get away from it. And I would admit that I find following soccer an escape. Golf has been up to the present, uh, another part in that line, but meeting people, getting away from everything, the excitement of the soccer, the, the, the work you've got to put into it, uh, leaves you fresher for your own job when you come back to it. There's no doubt about that. You'll get away from the worries of it. Sport, then, may be termed an antidote to the stresses of modern living. Certainly, during the past few decades, its growth has been phenomenal. And while this may be equated with an increase in leisure, the coming of the 40-hour week and the age of automation, yet, how important has this phenomenon been? The greatest social movement of the 20th century... Uh, and it's interesting that it's only in the 20th century that we see it this way. Uh, in the modern age, I suppose if one went back to antiquity, say to the, the age of Greece, classical Greece, you could see something comparable to this, but not for everybody. Uh, whereas in the 20th century, it is really for everybody. It's sport for all. And this is perhaps, in the view of some historians and some uh, sports sociologists, the most important influence that we have in the present century. There are very good reasons why this is so, and they have little to do with sport. Um, but as far as the influence is concerned, there is no two ways about it. Sport in the 20th century has been a major influence in shaping our lives. How does Ireland uh, fit into this context? Uh, does it fit in through uh, economic development, political development, or does it fit into the worldwide pattern? This? Well, I suppose the... Um, the simple answer is that there's a little bit of everything. Um, we're not isolated from the rest of the world, which means we're not immune to the influences from outside. We're also influenced by economic patterns and political patterns and all the rest. And, of course, this is clearly reflected uh, in sport. Uh, just let me give you an example. We're a bit late in the day uh, in becoming an industrialised, urbanised society. Uh, but the patterns that we're seeing in Ireland now about sports participation, of course... Uh, were in existence in other countries maybe about 20, 30 years ago. We're about, say, about 20 years behind. Because our economic development is uh, about 20 years or so behind the major developed uh, countries of, say, Western Europe or North America. Daily Mount Park, Sunday, April the 22nd. Cup final day between Shelburne and Cork Hibernians. Outside the ground, the usual pattern does not quite seem to fit into place. Official program! Official program! Official program! Are you going to the mat? Yeah. Who do you support? Uh, Cork Hips. Are you a Dublin man? Yeah. Why do you support Cork? Well, they're a good side. And they're quick. They're quick with the ball. I'd rather have Crow Park than a soccer any time. Why is this? Because you make more money out of them. You find that the GA followers buy more hats? Oh, they buy more hats. Uh-huh. Could you say any, any county in particular who would, who would buy more? Yes, Cork. This is Cork Gaelic? Cork, uh, Curling team, you know. Yeah. What about Cork Hibs? Oh, they're not sure about buying. Yeah. But Dublin Pay is very bad buying, you know. Why is this? Because now they never buy hats. All the country pay that buys hats. Uh-huh. Did they ever wear them, in fact? Do they have scarves or anything to make up for Oh, they do, sometimes, you know. Do you support any sport yourself? I like the Gaelic, you know. Yeah. 
But inside the ground, the comments of rival supporters follow more traditional pre-match lines. Boundless confidence in the ability of their heroes. I said three one, cock of uh-huh. You'd be disappointed if they're beaten. We won't be disappointed because we, they won't be beaten. Why not? No chance at all. Uh-huh. Two nil. Absolutely. What do you think? Hibs by two. Hibs by two. Uh, Hibs three one. Hibs will win clear when it's two nil. Three one. Shelburne will win two nil. Two nil. Four. Shelburne. Two nil by Shelburne. Shelburne two nil. Will you be very disappointed if they're beaten? Yeah. What would you say after the game if they're beaten? You didn't deserve the lose. No matter how, how badly they play. Yeah. Yeah. But in every crowd there is always at least one cynic. Yeah, that's all it is, a big business. That's all they play for now is money, isn't it? And for the gregarious Corkmen, it is also an opportunity to exult in their own particular brand of loyalty, no matter what the sport. We Cork people follow everything. Would you follow the, the, the hurling team if they were up here? Yes, sir. I think as a supporter of Cork, I personally think that all over the world they're noted for their sports followers. The people in Cork, irrespective of what sport it is, they're open-minded. They weren't waiting for the band to go in any kind of sport. They still supported anything that they wanted to support. Rugby game, they went to him ever before the band. Soccer, they went to him. The best of GM went to him. And I personally have seen him at it ever before the band. Uh-huh. And they just didn't give a damn what kind of sport was on. They just went to it. Two impeccably groomed teams take the field to a rapturous reception. As in all team sports, paradoxically, this is the climax, the moment to be savoured, the moment of purest joy, elation and optimism. The heroes are unsullied. It will take the duration of the match to reduce at least one team to human proportions again. There is a small gasp of admiration as Cork Hibernians take off tracksuit tops to reveal a stunning strip of green and white. The band strikes up the national anthem. The crowd is slightly taken unawares and the response is a curious one. Behind the goal at one end, a band of youthful Shelburne supporters set up a defiant rival chant and then, if stirred by some embarrassed feeling of country, spontaneously join in in Irish, several beats behind the band, and with a much quicker tempo. The match, which begins in a flurry of excitement, proves to be an acknowledged disappointment. Like caged animals, the two goalkeepers continually pace the goalmouth in vain expectation of an opportunity to excel. There is a mass exodus of Shelburne supporters towards the goalmouth into which their team is playing. The backs are direct and uncompromising, in marked contrast to the forwards, many of whom seem to be living in a dream world of their own, dreams which cannot be matched by their own abilities. Perhaps they too have seen too many cross-channel games on television. The pre-match optimism is gradually eroded, and the more vociferous of spectators seem to relish their self-appointed role. A forward throws himself down in the penalty area. Get up, MacLeamore! Still, no goals. A partially eaten pair bounces on the touchline beside two Gordy. The gentle force with which it is thrown epitomises the whole atmosphere. Long before the end, the crowd is dispersing, and the eventual nil-all draw is of the greatest disappointment to the hat-seller who could always depend on winning supporters adding to his sales. The young Shelburne supporters leave the ground silently, 
and, at a running pace, set off for the city centre, accompanied all the way by a squad bike. But already they are wondering, will they be able to afford the trip to Cork for the replay on the following Sunday? It's a standard in soccer. That's a, a, a good deal above the League of Ireland. And these stars become, become so glamorised with the modern media. They think of Bobby Charlton, Nobby Styles, Johnny Giles, and particularly any with an Irish connection. Now they will follow these and they'll follow their teams. Dr Bob O'Driscoll explaining the great interest shown in English league soccer in this country. I think that's the, 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 the basic thing is that it's, it's um, so highly competitive and so uh, the high in the grade of football and then the individuals. I think the individuals are probably the main factor, the names. It is not unusual on Saturday afternoons in shops and supermarkets to hear people inquire if Manchester United, Leeds, Liverpool or Arsenal won their respective matches and a team like Glasgow Celtic in Scotland, for nationalistic reasons, is regarded with universal affection. Television programmes from England, like Match of the Day and The Big Match, have a great bearing on this, but there is one major factor which is constant in all modern sport, the demand for the highest standards and the pursuit of excellence. But do we in Ireland lack the competitive urge? Has the image of the Irish sportsman with his traditional devil-may-care attitude become outdated? Well, I think that the Irishman's image in sport was the image of the great try-for-all-your-worth man, and this was particularly valuable in the days when sport, international sport even, was uh, an amateur thing. But nowadays, you know, let's be honest about it, the majority of international sport isn't sport anymore, it's big business. And I think that this country is being left behind in that big business as far as... uh, sports such as athletics and even boxing to a degree, as far as sports such as these are concerned. Now, sport in the old context, that is the sport in which the Irish do well. When we get mixed up with the professionals, the semi-professionals of the Russians and the Americans and these, well, this is where we get left behind. I think this is the problem in Ireland, that we're neither good at playing or good at competing. Uh, by not so good at competing, I mean that we tend to lose what we should win. And I think it is a confusion here. However, I would say that it is possible to have a primary and a secondary orientation. But I think it's got to be this way, that you're either taking part in sport from a competitive point of view and play is a part of it, or you're taking part in sport from a play recreational point of view and competition is part of it. But if you try for both together... As I've indicated, there is the danger, and I think our experience in Ireland illustrates this danger, of ending up with neither. What should we strive towards in international competition as, as a small nation? Well, in the first place, and I don't, uh, in the first place, I do not accept uh, the premise that because we're a small nation, we can't do uh, well in international sport. Finland, for example, is a population approximately the same as Ireland. So is New Zealand. But they've done extremely well in competitive sport. I think it's more than this. I think it's an orientation. I think it's an acceptance of what high-level international competition entails. Uh, once again, if I may use the illustration I made just a moment ago, I think the confusion ends, puts us in the position where we end up with neither good play or good recreation or, on the other hand, good competitive uh, results. And I think this is our problem here. Uh, competition, uh, for me anyway, and I speak now with the background of experience both on continental Europe, in Britain and in North America, competition is a device. 
for establishing a winner according to certain rules. It says nothing about play, it says nothing about satisfaction, it says nothing about enjoyment, it says even nothing about records. It just says, you know, who is the winner? Now, if you go into competition saying, oh yes, winning is the important thing, but there are other things, you are putting yourself at a disadvantage to, uh, to athletes or other teams who go into competition and say, our only measure of success is winning, and this is why we're here and we're trying 110% to win. Um, you are putting yourself at a disadvantage if you go in making reservations about winning or making reservations about 110% effort. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that we in Ireland find it very hard to take. And I feel myself um, that sport is a very interesting social phenomenon in the sense that the ethos of the society uh, can be seen in operation on the sports field. Um, if one was to ask me what the ethos of Ireland was through our history, I feel that the ethos could be put down in the phrase... Um, struggle. And most of our struggle, unfortunately, has been rather unsuccessful over the last uh, uh, number of centuries. Um, therefore, on the field of play, perhaps we're looking for glorious failure than somehow or other regrettable success. And if you go in with any reservations into top-level competition, uh, any reservations at all in regard to um, winning, uh, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. And this, to me, gives the key to understanding a situation in which we, on many occasions, had the team to win, but unfortunately we didn't win. And also, of course, the, the very odd situation in Ireland where on many occasions we went in with an inferior team, but in fact we won. Uh, we, and I suppose this is part of our great contribution to Western civilization. we are a people uh, who never do what we're supposed to do. Uh, in many occasions in sport... We tend to um, you know, win what we should lose and lose what we should win. And this makes sports extremely interesting. This is the great challenge. This is the great drama of sport. This is the great attraction of sport and so on. But it doesn't lead to success at things like the international games of, say, uh, Olympic nature of, say, the European Championships or things like this. The swimming pool at Tempelo College at 7 a.m., where a group of 20 or so swimmers train six mornings a week. The best known probably is Christine Fulcher, who swam for Ireland in the Munich Olympics. Why the early start? Well, it's very hard to get training at other hours, in the evening especially. and It's a good time to train. How long will this morning session last for? An hour. It's all we can afford. We have to go to work, school, wherever we're going. What's your normal schedule then for, for a normal day? We do about uh, 2,000 to 3,000 in this session in the morning. And if it's possible to get training at night, we'd do another two or 3,000. What time would you have to get up every morning at during the week? We get up at half six to get here by seven. Allowing, uh, well, there isn't any traffic. <laughs> but we have to leave here about quarter past eight and get into the traffic then. and uh, it's pretty hard to get back on time Do you find it often difficult to keep this routine? Is is, is, is it it a strain? It is a strain, yeah you often get very tired and fed up with it but you just, it's times like this when our mother especially comes in and she says, you have to go, (laughs) don't give up now you know For how many years have you been been doing this now? Um, This is my fourth year 
in competitive swimming as such. What are your immediate goal? Would it be the national championships or would it be internationals or would it be different ones at different times? Well, for this year, I'm setting my goal at uh, the British Nationals. I'd like to win them this year. I was third in them last year. And they're in August, so I'm setting my hopes on that. There is always the possibility, even with all your training, that you may go over to an international swim and, and be right out of it. Uh, is this something that, that you accept or something you, uh, that you have to, to hope that you do better the next time? No, we're very outclassed when we go away. We don't do nearly enough training. We think we're doing a lot when we come here in the morning, but what the others do compared to what we do is absolutely nothing. They're doing it you know, three times a day. How many more years do you think that you will, you will stay in swimming? Not more than one or two. Swimming is really a youth sport. and becoming more and more so. All the little ones now... When I first started, you wouldn't find any children under about 14 or 15 in a morning training session. Now they're all 8-year-olds, 9-, 10-year-olds. And so training commenced under the supervision of coaches Perry Mason and Frank McInerney. We have plenty of good swimmers and we have plenty of good coaches, so I suppose the primary lack is... A pool comparable to those in which the international swimmers swim when they do go away. That is a long, this long course, 50 metre pool. We have plenty of short course pools, 25 metres. But we feel that when our swimmers go away, that when they face down a 50 metre pool, we, we have the impression that they're at a psychological disadvantage right away. We have a lot of young swimmers here this morning. Are these all promising swimmers as well as the established ones? Yes, we have, as you say, as you will have noticed, you probably recognise some of them, we have established swimmers here, national champions and interprovincial champions, one Olympic swimmer. But here also you see young, very promising swimmers whom we hope will attain the same level as the senior swimmers in the course of a year or two. How many mornings a week do they come here at 7 o'clock? We train here six mornings a week. We vary our training according to the events that are coming up. And according to the seasons, you know, we have comparatively closed season and then we have the competition season in which we are now. So we vary our training accordingly, but we're here all the time. Well, we're doing what's called quality swimming at the moment. So we have to watch their strokes, their tumbles and their starts every time. 84, Liam. 84. 91, Valerie. 96, Christine. 142, Margaret. Can you ever see a time when, when we could have one, one world-class swimmer in Ireland? Uh, I'll see a time when we get better facilities in swimming. We have bigger pools and... Uh, better coaches. As a friend of mine said last weekend, we've no experts, so we're all experts. But if modern sports demands dedication and hard work, there are also certain benefits for the successful, the opportunity to travel and a certain amount of useful publicity. There was an old adage which said that if one were successful at either golf or rugby, one would never be short of a job in Ireland. And indeed, success on the GAA fields has helped many a man on his way to Dáil Éireann. During the past decade, one of Ireland's greatest competitors has been athlete Noel Carroll. What has sport meant to him? 
Sport, to me, is a way of life, really. It has perhaps less significance now than it had 10 years ago when I was uh, uh, an enthusiastic young athlete sort of branching forth into the wide world of international athletics. Sport has been a vehicle to me. It has been a way of uh, achieving, I suppose, an education, number one. It has been uh, a way of achieving a certain amount of notoriety. It has been way of achieving a certain amount of physical well-being it it has done enormous amounts of things for me i've put a lot into it and i've been rewarded i think more than amply and i would continue to see it as playing this role in my life i would continue to see it as a as a way of life as a part of life i would intend to be continue to be involved at every level for many years to come but noel now in common with many others is concerned with the modern trend in sport professionalism is becoming more and more an important factor, and with it, all the ramifications of big business. We've reached a stage now where a certain branch of sport has really become entertainment. I don't think we can give it the the true classification of sport, which is really the amateur ideal, the participation in sport as a recreation, as a pastime, as something for letting off steam, as a social occasion, all these things. Sport has still got these marvellous qualities, but this branch, if you like, has been created that is really more entertainment there's large commercial involvements like you know there are footballers being sold for £200,000 and all this kind of thing this is really not sport in its true sense and its true essence but I think that uh, what we've got to do is to define this as what it really is and sort of forget about it as being sport looking at it as entertainment just the way we look on a circuit as being entertainment as a theatre as being entertainment these people who are involved in this are professionals and they've got to put up professional performances and they make their living from it and I'm all for them, fine but I think that we've got to become realistic enough to draw the line to decide what is sport, what is entertainment and to, I think uh, invest in the participation end, the sport end and let the entertainment end look after itself And what of the future of the Olympic Games once the embodiment of amateurism and good fellowship can they survive in the changing times? Yes, I think that the Olympics has outlived its ideals. It has sort of it's been caught up in the age of sort of mass production and high investment, and you know it's looked on as a as a major public relations exercise by a lot of the countries in the world. They're prepared to spend an awful lot of money, invest an awful lot of resources, much more so than we are capable of or ever will be capable of. I think that. Uh, the time will soon come when the Olympics will become sort of an open event and again I'm all for this but I think that we should again retain the sort of some kind of an Olympic, some kind of event where the amateur, the, the true participant who's just interested in the sport for its own sake can participate. I think that we should allow the Olympics to continue as it is but to be realistic, recognise it for what it is a large sort of United Nations where everybody can blow that trumpet depending on how much money they spend on it. But uh, I think that it should be let go as that. But we should also uh, cater for the the people who want to. to. I think that one sport that uh, shows this very much is rugby. They, they retain their, their sort of amateur identity.
The members' bar inside Lansdowne Road ground is crowded. It is Saturday, April 28th, Leinster Senior Cup final day between Wanderers and St Mary's. Outside, three cheers are being called for Offaly, yes, Offaly, who, represented by Tullamore, have just been beaten by North County Dublin in the Leinster County Championship final. Now, although the match is but a few minutes away, the bar shows no signs of emptying. But still, the rival supporters are confident, if somewhat cautious. Um, I think it's going to be very close, but uh, being a Wanderers supporter, I have to say Wanderers. But I'll give you this, that Mary's are, have a very good team. I'd say Mary's should easily win it. Depends. If it's open football, I'd say Mary's. They have the pack, weight in the pack and in the backs as well for the running. Mary's will win uh, strong, much stronger forwards. Uh, on paper, Mary's. Yeah, same here. Mary's have to win it, you know, on paper. Why? Much stronger forwards, uh, better halfbacks. Um, the pack, I'd say, possibly. But there is still time for a comment on the overall state of the game. I'd say it's, uh, the Irish rugby is improving now because it's broadening. You know, the base of Irish rugby is broadening. With a minimum of fuss, the match has already started. There are no hats or colours, and despite the cold, very few of the statutory rugs are in evidence. But partisan supporters show no inhibitions in urging on their side. Wanderers take an early lead through a penalty goal, and this is followed by a surprising and futile exchange of punches, which looks far less dangerous than any of the loose rucks, and which has its own share of comedy as a scrum half takes on a rival's second row forward. The outburst, however, is dealt with in a very calm and methodical way. The rival captains are called together, they in turn ask the teammates to cool down, and the game proceeds. Part of the spectator's enjoyment seems to stem from the interpretation of the referee, especially in the matter of giving penalties. You can't break forward before the ball is out. The game springs suddenly to life as the St Mary's full-back, after a magnificent dummying run from halfway, crashes over the line, a score to make the whole match worthwhile. Wanderers are still ahead at half-time, and when the referee blows his whistle, the rush to the bar suggests an imminent return to prohibition. After an exciting second half, Wanderers hold on to win narrowly. The speeches are brief and witty. Each winning player is called up in turn to the stand to receive his medal. A special cheer is reserved for the grizzled warrior, Jerry Cullerton. Wanderers have won the cup for the ninth time since 1885. Outside, the lone stallholder, well stocked with nut chocolate, is doing moderate business. And inside, at least one girl is happy. Why had she come? Great booze up afterwards. A post-match happening common to many sports. But of all Irish sporting organisations, in terms of support, pride of place must go to the Gaelic Athletic Association. You know, no matter how people try to advertise to the contrary, the main interest in this country is in our own Gaelic games. The attendances at league matches, uh, they prove this. At championship matches, they really prove it. And... I'd hate to see this country get away from the time when there was a big interest on the countryside in the matches between the townlands. Okay, this probably sounds old-fashioned in 73, but these contests and the rivalry uh, between townlands and villages, this is what sport is all about. The view of Michael O'Hare. But what of the role of the GA itself? 
is it more than simply a sporting organisation? Ex-President Pat Fanning. While it had as its primary purpose the cultivation and restoration of Irish games, it was still dedicated to secure through the playing of Irish games a greater regard and a greater awareness of all aspects of Irish culture and even nationality. Has this role changed somewhat down the years? It has. Well, again, it was a question of the needs of the times and the means of Father Times. And in the island into which the GA was born, it was sufficient that there would be just the nucleus of an organisation, the Gaelic Athletic Association, in which the people, formerly without organisation in the country, were unable to find themselves and through the GA learn the art of organisation, so that at the time the games of themselves rooted in the parishes were sufficient. But as the association evolved and as times changed, there had to be uh, a greater emphasis on other aspects, and the social aspect entered very much into it in recent years as a necessary part of fulfilling the GA's primary purpose to secure for the people of Ireland an organisation in which now, as we see, they could fulfil themselves not only athletically, but culturally and socially as well, and that there would be a place in our organisation for more than the male athlete, the young man, that there would be a place for the young and the old, the ladies as well as the men. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, uh, there is a the great move from the country to the city. How, how does this affect the, the organisation? It does, of course, because the organisation has a rural image, an image, incidentally, of which we are justifiably proud. And we do consider that its rural role remains a very vital part of the association's work. And we have identified very much with schemes in rural Ireland today to secure that people will remain in the rural areas even though they commute. And this is in keeping with modern thinking. But you do suggest a new problem, and it is a new problem. It is a problem that is going to be difficult to solve. But I think we have begun in recent years to accept that this problem exists and existing. We have begun to plan for its solution. And the development through the country in urban areas, uh, even more so than in rural areas, in urban areas that are now emerging and developing GAA centres, again consistent with the GAA attitude that in and through the GAA we will supply in the Ireland that is in it, the means through which our people can secure these amenities in an atmosphere and in a culture that is Irish. In provincial areas, particularly down through the years, the GAA has been criticised for lack of facilities at their grounds. Down footballer Sean O'Neill. My experience over the, over the last number of years is that this, there have been great improvements in this area and uh, it's very commonplace now to see the, uh, clubs who uh, six, seven years ago uh, had no facilities whatsoever at their club grounds. Now have beautiful pavilions. Uh, they're working at, at uh, putting proper surfaces on their on their grounds. And there has been a very big emphasis from uh, from the top in the GA at, uh, over the over say this last three four years uh, at the at the building of uh, of uh, pavilions and this kind of thing. And uh, I think that the the GA are awakening to to the to the realities of the situation here in 1973 and that they're having to face up to the competition from other sports in this area and that young lads in other sports are being provided with these facilities and that if the GA does not provide similar facilities, they're going to lose out to the youth. And what of the development of hurling in football? Hurling is acknowledged to be one of the world's finest field games and matches like the recent game between Tipperary and Limerick reinforced this view. But have the games themselves developed? I think they've changed a lot. There's a lot more... uh emphasis on speed, particularly in hurling. I think that uh, 
fast moving uh, forwards trying to uh, elude the defenders I think these have become uh, a lot more part of hurling than they were in the old days when a man was more inclined to stand shoulder to shoulder and pull first time on the ball. Uh, nowadays uh, I think even referees are sometimes inclined to frown at men standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, I think there's a, a different emphasis on the uh, foundation or the real structure of the games. And in the same vein, Sean O'Neill plots the future scope of Gaelic football. I feel that the game, Karen, is only in its infancy. The, 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 this is, I'm talking from the purely football point of view now. I think that the Gaelic football uh, is, as, and I say this with respect for the other games, I think it is the greatest go- ball field game in the world, ball field game in the world. I've seen, I've played most of them and I've watched all of them. And uh, in my view, Gaelic football, when we come to examine it closely, when we, exam- we come to, to play it tactically as it should be played, when we're fit enough to play it at the speed that it should be played at, and when we tidy up the rules a little there, some of the rules I think are, are a little bit inhibiting at the moment, the tackling rules and things like this, when we have those cleared up, I think that we will provide a spectator game that will have no match whatsoever in, in the world. But in common with many other aspects of Irish life, Sport does not escape the consequence of the political divide, and although the GAA is a 32-county organisation, yet it has little appeal for the Northern Protestant. Malcolm Brodie. To be completely honest here, I would say that uh, the uh, Northern Protestant uh, has just that little bit uh, of uh, suspicion about the GAA, that it is not primarily a sporting body, but one with uh, nationalist... uh, Uh, nationalistic uh, instincts and nationalistic principles. A charge which is answered thus by Sean O'Neill. The unfortunate part of it is that the people uh, that we would like to have playing the games, non-Catholics, in other words, in the the divisional talk of Northern Ireland, non-Catholics, unfortunately, are not interested in playing the national games. This is very sad. Curiously, of all the Ulster counties, Antrim has the greatest tradition of hurling. Jack Rooney, chairman of the Antrim County Board, gives this rather novel explanation. The coast, the north of Antrim and uh, the east coast uh, is where it is strong and it also is in the Arch Peninsula of Down and one feels that there is a, a direct connection between that and the proximity of Scotland and the, the game of Shinty. Uh, and th- this is probably why it has survived. Probably the best example of 32-county unity in sport is the Irish rugby team, which has survived both the recent troubles in addition to those of 50 years ago. There is also unity in golf, and despite some recent differences in boxing and hockey, but tragically, not in soccer, the traditional urban working-class game. It's only logical to have uh, one team... Uh, obviously you have greater numerical strength and as a result a better chance of succeeding uh, against better endowed uh, nations. But one must be realistic. Uh, there are too many vested interests and while the present political boundaries exist, I don't see any prospect of unification of, uh, in soccer in uh, Ireland. Do you think this is a bad thing? Uh, as I said earlier, uh, I think it's a logic. It should be logical for to have uh, uh, one team. You're going to have uh, uh, a larger uh, a larger choice of, of uh, players, uh, and uh, indeed, uh, it perhaps could uh, help uh, to uh, end a lot of the conflict which we are faced with today. 
In other words, do you think that that a lot of goodwill could be built up between the, the North and South through a unified soccer team? I think a lot of goodwill could be built up if there was a unified team, uh, provided that the officials were able to agree among themselves to get that unified team. A ridiculous, if not unusual, state of affairs when officials become more important than players. In cycling and athletics, a similar situation exists and it is left to such minority sports such as bowls to bridge the gap. I feel that uh, if there can be a complete uh, cooperation uh, and an understanding not only by uh, sports people but by outside interests uh, that uh, sport uh, can help to bring uh, people together and perhaps alleviate this rather tragic situation. It is often pointed out that in Northern Ireland, owing to financial help from Britain, facilities are so much better than in the South. However, since 1970, when the first parliamentary secretary to the Minister for Education was appointed, the government has been putting more emphasis on physical recreation here, the cornerstone of the policy being the National College of Physical Education in Limerick. In addition, grants amounting to £160,000 in the current year are being given to 79 organisations, ranging from the Ackle Island Outdoor Pursuit Centre to sports such as karate, surfing, skiing and weightlifting. But what role should the state play in sport? What has been the experience throughout the world? Cyril White. You can see sport as either expressive, to express yourself, to look for meaning and understanding, or you can see sport as an instrument, as a means of achieving... Uh, some kind of aim, which is uh, an aim based on, say, an ideology. The Eastern European countries, the Soviet Union particularly, have made absolutely uh, no secret about using sport as an ideological weapon uh, in the Cold War. And they use sport here as an instrument, an instrument of furthering their own particular way of life. The Americans, to a certain degree, have done the same. Uh, But it is not the American state that tends to do this, the American universities that tend to do this. Um, We are somewhere uh, between the two. There is certainly state aid needed. There's no two ways about this, and I'm not saying that it isn't needed, and I'm not welcoming the state aid that we've got in this country, because the amount of capital investment in providing sports facilities seem to be beyond all uh, groups but the state, and this is a means of providing alternative uh, ways of spending leisure time. But too much of this... Uh, is bad, in the sense that it tends to perhaps cut down on people's initiative. But too little of this means that you can't even start. So while the state is involved in this, and has to be involved in this, um, too much state interference and influence, like, say, in the Soviet Union, uh, means that it's used as an instrument of state policy. And this is where the danger arises. But I certainly think our own uh, particular um, way of doing it here uh, is perhaps a better way, but I think we need more involvement in uh, capital expenditure. There is also a swing away from spectator sports to more active participation. This again can be deduced by the many varied sports now receiving grants. We are seeing a situation in which (coughs) uh, people have much more time and they have much more money. Now, when they have the money, they are not content to put up with uh, just perhaps one sport, and one sport at a certain level, say, going and watching. They'd much prefer to have a go themselves at quite a number of sports. And when they go to watch, they only want to watch the very best. So that if the very best is not provided, they won't go and watch. 
they will tend to do something else. And, of course, the influence of the mass media, particularly television, is that we see the very best. In fact, we see something that, in many cases, doesn't even exist. And this is the, the electronic game, the recorded highlights of a game. But this is uh, the standards that people uh, look for today. And people will not, in fact, go uh, in the numbers they did. They, they, they will not go in the same um, volume of numbers as they did heretofore to see uh, games that they consider to be inferior to what they can see on television. And, of course, the choices of doing a lot of other things and participating uh, is open to them as well. So what spectator sports have now got to do is to compete against... Um, many uh, participatory sports that heretofore people could not engage in because they hadn't got the money or the time, but they now both have the money and the time to engage in, and this is what people are doing. Rather ironically, as far as success in sport is concerned in Ireland, our greatest winners have been of a four-legged variety, namely the Irish horse. Although horse racing now is a very vigorous industry, yet it has a great appeal as a spectator sport on which it largely depends for its existence. Irish jump jockeys, too, have earned a worldwide reputation, one is only to recall the exploits of Pat Taff and Arkle in recent years. And in show jumping, again, both horses and riders have gained international fame, the most famous combination being Tommy Wade and his little horse Dundrum. For, indeed, it is in recollection that the sports enthusiast waxes most eloquently. There are those who can, without difficulty, rattle off the entire composition of teams and scores of matches played long years ago. In many a holstery, constant comparison is made between the heroes of today and yesterday. Who can forget these names in Irish sport? Christy Ring, Jackie Carey, Ronnie Delaney, Larry Stanley, Joe Carr, Jackie Kyle, Dr Pat O'Callaghan. What year did Christy O'Connor and Harry Bradshaw win the equivalent of the World Golf Cup in Mexico? What player won the most All-Ireland? When did Ireland last win the Triple Crown in rugby? Who was the most capped player? Who holds the record? of such a sport made of, the agony and the ecstasy, the recollection and the dream, and the reality. And it is to the sportsman that we finally turn for the reality, for the division between himself and the public, for the personal and public attitude to victory. Noel Carroll. To be perfectly honest, I never saw, and I, I don't honestly believe that, that any other person who represents Ireland has done, you don't feel this nationalistic pride, you don't feel this surge of exhilaration, you don't feel the green shamrock sort of bulging on your heart as you come down the finishing straight and breast the tape. You don't have any of these feelings at all. You do afterwards. It's nice to come home. It's nice to feel the sort of the national pat on the back. It's nice to feel that people say you've done well for your country. These feelings are nice afterwards, but quite honestly, you don't, because sport is, in, in most cases, a tremendously individual thing. You put a tremendous amount of individual effort, a tremendous amount of personal dedication, and you don't really want to share this, at least not to yourself anyway. You like to, their own personal feeling of satisfaction, the own personal glory, if you like. And fine, if the nation want to cash in and it, fine, you're delighted and, and it makes it sort of all the more rewarding afterwards. But quite honestly, I don't think that anybody feels like carrying their country on their back. And there goes Carroll. He's kicking now. He's opening a big lead. He's opening it to four, five, six yards. He has a seven-yard lead now at Morrison, who is flagging. Carroll is striding away. Ah! 